Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter. That's where we've been studying on Sunday mornings throughout this semester, and we're coming to the close here. 1 Peter chapter 5, and this morning we're going to be studying verses 6 through 11. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. And so Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask now that you would give the Spirit of Christ to come and press the truth and grace of it home into our hearts. We ask it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm not much of a gardener, nor for gardening. It's just not something that I do. Uh, But I do love a good garden. Uh, We were made in a garden. Uh, We were made for spreading a garden and are, in Christ alone, destined for a garden city. And so perhaps it's with good reason we tend to have an affinity for gardens. But this side of the fall, ahead of God's new creation, not all gardens are alike delightful. And to that point, we think especially of a garden like Gethsemane. And it's this dark garden situated between gardens of light, Eden and that which is coming, that often makes its way into the Christian story as we recall the the blood-pressed stress of the task before Jesus, his groaning prayers, his desperate calls for a brotherly kind of support that did not come. We think of the isolation, we think of the temptation, 
We think of that evil hour and the darkness, and yet we also remember His resolve. Not mine, but thine. Do you remember it? Not as I will, but as you will. Our eternal salvation is nestled securely in His remarkable resolution in that garden. And so too is a snapshot of our salvation being worked out in this world. We are, as Peter's told us over and over again, God's elect what? Exiles. And as such, Gethsemane is sort of this paradigm for the faithful Christian life. We can't walk in the steps of Jesus without frequenting this garden, even abiding there, praying to show better than Peter ultimately showed. You see, as we come to our text, Peter clearly has Gethsemane in mind. It became part of him. Indeed, it seems it became a model for endurance in the Christian life. Insofar as we keep doing God's kind of good, it appears we will live in that garden. We will taste of hell's rage, or we will stare down a given cross and need to decide still every day to share in Christ's sufferings. Not mine, but thine. Not as I will, but as you will. Beloved, the high king's highway does lead to eternal glory. We just read that. But to walk well upon that highway, we have to take up our cross. We have to take up our cross, and not just once, but by the day, and follow Jesus, which is always preceded by a Gethsemane. With joy in our hearts and more on the horizon, we wake up in that garden daily to resolve afresh whatever becomes of me for the sake of Jesus, God only let your will be done, and then we go on firm in the faith. As sojourners, we pick up one blistered foot and put down the other bloodied one, but not without kind helps. From the high king who bled for us and in that way secured our will for every step along his way. How we need to know that as we run the race set before us, we're cared for by the God of all grace such that the crown, the victory is sure. That because of Jesus, we find our Gethsemanes ripe with His preserving graces. So let's come to them, beginning in verses 6 and 7. If you look there, and see the call in the way of hard obedience to cast all of our anxieties on God because God cares for you. So Peter writes, He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And here it is, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Now, you'll notice that therefore in verse 6, Peter's just called us to clothe ourselves, all of us clothe ourselves 
with humility. Why? Well, that's the cue for the therefore in our passage. It's grounding humility as necessary because in the hard course of the Christian life, we'll be often tempted to pride. We'll be often tempted to play God. And what Peter's just said is, when we do that, we will be destroyed. That's inviting the opposition of God into our lives. But on the contrary, God gives grace to the humble, he says. And as that's the case, we ought not hesitate to bow ourselves before God and go his way. Whatever that means for us. But Peter understands why we would hesitate. As well as the thought process that attends it. If I think I have two ways to the same destination. One clear. The other a collection of miseries. I'm going to go the way of least resistance. I'm going to be hesitant to undergo all of the injuries awaiting me in the other way unless I see that the easy way actually leads to destruction while the hard way is a peace with eternal life. And so what have we seen in 1 Peter but that the way of Christ as can be deduced from his own course in this world is an injury laden course. It involves various fiery trials. So, when I could just kick it with the world and avoid the cross, why would I willingly navigate cross-bearing love? Why would I willingly open myself up to say marital strife, as we saw in 1 Peter 3? Why would I open myself up willingly for, to, to, to smear campaigns and, and biased interrogations and unjust beatings and maybe even martyrdom and all of Satan's rage? Why would I do that? Well, the only answer, the only answer is that grace has brought us to see that it's all a peace with eternal life. It's that from above, we've been born again so that through the flames, as I look through the flames and I look through whatever pains there are in the way of Christ, we actually see Christ. We see our beloved Savior and the eternal glory that's only in Him. Jesus endured the cross. Jesus resolved, not mine, but thine. Why? Because there really was a joy set before Him that was greater than the pain he was called to endure. That's incredible. And it won't be different for us. The humility that kisses the cross believes, must believe, in eternal glory beyond it. It's when we lose sight of this. It's when forever gets really small and the now looms really large. When the present trial begins to outweigh the eternal purpose of it, that we are strongly tempted to say, not thine, but mine. That's when pride sort of butts in and sinful anxiety kicks in. When we no longer functionally believe God is sovereign. Or His hand mighty. Or His promise sure. Or His heart tender. 
toward us. That's when we begin to trade in fool's gold. We begin to place our faith in ourselves and in our inability to control providence. And so because we don't approve of his will, we don't appreciate his tact, we believe we can govern better and more to our liking and preferences, we sort of thump God off the throne and act as a poor, poor substitute for the almighty great heart. Alas, it appears the only God we trust far too often is us. And anxiety occurs when we feel but fail to see our ineptitude to fill his role. It'd be like me, as many of you know, a technological imbecile, believing that I could adequately perform George's computerific job, only to realize as the tasks pile up and the accountability from my boss grew hot, how absolutely inept I truly am, but I keep on trying to pull it off myself. That's pride. And anxiety then stems from the foolish belief that somehow, despite my felt inability and inevitability, I only alone am able to accomplish the task. I look to me in all of my insufficiency. And this is how we often try to live the Christian life. In our own strength. Instead of the strength that God supplies for it. And this sinful posture, this sinful posture can be oddly magnified when that life is hard, gets hard. It seems we're spring-loaded not toward prayer and not toward peace, but toward the pride and anxiety that only, again, adds the Lord's opposition to what we're already experiencing. And so we need to lay it to heart now that self-reliance, though it sometimes seems more practical than, say, prayer, is actually self-injury. We need God's grace. We need God's grace. And that comes to us by way of supernatural humility. And so Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore. Humility. Humility may look like weak sauce to the world. But really, as Peter says, it's just entrusting yourself to the mighty hand of God. You know what's weak? I'll tell you what's weak. What's weak is taking matters into my own hands. My hands are weak. You know what's not weak? Placing yourself in the hand that delivered Israel out of Egypt. Placing yourself in the hand that delivered you out of your sin. Affliction, one said, either drives us into the arms of God or severs us from Him. What does affliction or trouble do with you? Does it make us ill with God or does it make us submissive to Him? Does it make us unbelieving or does it make us all the more interesting? Does it nullify the promise so proven in Scripture, which Jesus also made, that the last shall be what? 
First, the lowly shall be lifted high, the humble shall be exalted, as he says in this passage, at the proper time. Does it make us anxiety hoarders? Or anxiety casters? Because you see, not only is the hard path humbly taken, the path at last to heaven, but also to God as our very present help in time of trouble. It's the path to a daily interaction with His heart. God, Peter says here, cares for you. Why don't we believe that? How frequently we do need to hear it. By humility, we commit ourselves both to God's hand and to God's heart. His power and His pity towards us. So let me ask us, what keeps us from prayer? What keeps us from prayer? The answer here is nothing in God. Nothing in God. As He's almighty, He's certainly able to help us. And as the Almighty cares for you, what can overcome His willingness to do so? And if you doubt His care, let me just ask you, brothers and sisters, what say you about His cross? Is Christ crucified an insufficient proof that the Father really loves you and keeps watch over you to kindly care for you? Is the blood of Jesus not enough to convince us that our Father will hear and answer us when we pray? His hand is strong enough. His heart is big enough to bear and care after, I want you to see it in the text, all of our anxieties. All of them. So again, why would we hoard our anxieties? Why would we hoard our cares? Why not cast them all upon Him? Why not be children? Why not be spiritual dependents? When in the text of Scripture, right here, God Himself invites us to be so. It is a kind help for keeping to the High King's Highway that we do not keep to it without an open invitation from Him to unburden ourselves, to tap into His endless supply of grace, and in the end, to take heart in His heart for us. So, when the going gets tough for Jesus, let's humble ourselves as those who know we are in the best and heartiest of hands. Let's press forward in obedience, casting all of our anxieties in that way upon Him, because He really does care for you. Another kind help comes to us. And it's this. Resist the devil. Resist the devil 
as one of God's family of soldiers. Look at verses 8 and 9. Peter now writes, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And, is there any doubt now that Peter set us in our own Gethsemane? He puts a face on our temptation and then essentially echoes our Lord's own admonitions to him while they were in that dark garden of distress. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Things that are critical to prayer. Which we must also be because, he says, there is this bloodthirsty adversary who thinks, if I can just get them drunk enough, if I can just get them drowsy enough, pride will replace prayer. (laughs) Beloved, how mighty, how mighty a thing is prayer that God invites us to it and Satan does all he can to keep us from doing it. If he can make us prideful, he can make us prayerless. And if he can make us prayerless, he can make us powerless. And so ironically, Satan labors to make us think we're strong in order to make us weak. So that he, being weaker, listen, he's weaker than the Christian in full armor, might by chance find one, someone, that he can devour. What a haunting word someone is. He doesn't care who. He's fine if it's you. Or me. His passion in this is impartial. But not unthoughtful. Peter calls the devil a lion. And as lions are adept at singling out the weakest in a herd and attacking there, so this fiendish lion operates. And so where then, listen, we find ourselves growing weak in grace where we find ourselves growing comfortable in the dark, where we find ourselves growing self-sufficient, prayerless, where we find ourselves growing spiritually careless, Peter's saying, be alerted. A lion is on the nearby perimeter and you're within the destructive swipe of his paw. The devil is a predator. He is a predator. He means to isolate and prey on the weak. That's his game. That's his hunting MO. To separate you from the flock. To lure you away from the shepherd's care and out into the open field of the world. Listen. You let this lion lead you to spiritual lethargy and you're like to become a meal for him. And Peter knows this all too well, doesn't he? Peter did not heed the alarms of Jesus in the garden. Right? You remember this? Be watchful. Stay awake. Pray. Peter did not heed the alarms of Jesus in the garden so that when identification with Jesus in his cross came to Peter, Peter chose denial. Denial. 
not obedience. He slept. And as he slept, he did not watch. He did not pray. And as he did not watch or pray, he became a prey for the devil. The temptation to deny Christ and save his life proved too strong for that unstable soul. And so he's saying, he's just saying to us, learn from my error. Labor to be above my sins. Listen to Jesus and resist the devil firm in your faith. Now, it does at first seem strange that we'd be so heavy-eyed when the devil's making so much noise. When his lullaby is the sound of his roar. You see that in the passage? He's prowling around like a roaring lion. So be sober-minded and watchful. Uh, there's an old Val Kilmer movie. Does anybody remember Val Kilmer? Okay. You're showing your age, probably. <clears throat> there's an old Val Kilmer movie called The Ghost and the Darkness. Uh, they're trying to build a bridge in Africa, but the project is halted because of a pack of lions, or whatever they're called. They keep on picking people off. And as a younger me, I especially remember the attacks in the night and how they could hear the lions roaring around the camp and how all of this kept the, the remaining folks on their very watchful and sober toes. But now, however our own drowsiness comes into play, how it, however it strangely holds little sway to see Christians being picked off by the day, it seems, it appears here his roar acts as a sleeping agent. How so? Well, his roaring, it seems, regards the world's persecuting. And persecution, hardship for Jesus, tempts us to lay down our arms. Tempts us to withdraw from the battle. Tempts us to join the side of ease and comfort. Tempts us to take recourse to the world. Tempts us to ultimately distance ourselves far enough away from the Savior and the safety of His camp that we all but walk right into the devil's mouth. Beloved, He's out there. Granted, praise God, He's on a leash. But He is out there. So we'd better be aware of the danger and prepared to resist His designs. We've got to have a security system. We've got to have a security system like a gospel-centered church that works to make only Jesus irresistible to us. That's how we're helped to resist the devil. It's by being rocked up in the faith. Satan will, will pull us where we're pullable. You see? So resistance is about firmness. Church, listen. We will not fight the good fight of faith well where our faith is flabby. Doubting Thomases do exist, but they do not exist for 
an affirming replication. They exist for a very different resolution. The advice of the world, so much in the church unfortunately today also, to hold our convictions loosely, to be universally skeptical, to affirm all or actually be dubbed prideful, reeks of Satan's hunting grounds. Because in fact, such doubt is actually injurious pride. True humility firmly believes all God says in His Word. True humility does not require instability in the truth. It's pride that refuses to be firm. Except, of course, in one's own certainty that everything should be doubted. Certainly such pride that would doubt God before itself, that would doubt the gospel before itself, is a faith that's built upon sinking sands instead of the everlasting rock of the Word of God. But true humility abides there on that rock and it stands there unmoved. Like Martin Luther, the old reformer, it says, Here I stand. God help me. So resisting the devil begins and ends by taking confidence in the sword of the Spirit. The battle is won by believing all God says to us in the Bible, and particularly of His grace in Jesus. We do that, and He will flee. He'll play His part of the beaten lion, as it comes clear by our resistance that we belong to the Alpha Lion, our Lord Jesus, who powerfully defends His own. And, it doesn't at all hurt to realize that we're not fighting the good fight as the last survivor of a lost war. No, indeed, it is a kind help for keeping to the High King's Highway to remember we are one among many still fighting on the winning side. That our personal battle is truly part of God's world war. It's part of the universal Christian experience. Indeed, the battle says we're part of the true family of God. This is meant to, to now galvanize our efforts in the battle. We're not alone in the faith, and we're not alone in the fight. We're part of a people, however geographically disconnected, who are yet connected in Christ for the advance of His kingdom. Listen, beloved. Like Elijah, like Elijah, we may feel as if we have personally lost. We may feel as if we're, we're the only ones left. We may feel as if the enemy has won and all else has gone the way of misery. But listen, just as in those days, God today continues to keep a fighting remnant of grace in the world. I think of the cosmic battle scene in Marvel's Endgame. I'm sorry if you don't like Marvel stuff. But in this final battle, the great enemy Thanos has, has just disposed of all the great heroes. Right? Thor and Iron Man and Captain America. All seems to be lost. But just as Cap, Captain America, 
Just as he begins to, to get up, all bloodied and broken, to make his last stand, a voice comes through his earpiece. Help is on the way. Help has arrived. And one by one, these portals begin to open. Portals begin to open, and a vast army of avengers from all over the world pour into the scene that ends in victory. They had not been seen. They had not been counted upon. But wherever they'd been, they'd been fighting the same fight. And how rallying this was for those who thought they were the only ones left. Again, Satan wants you to believe you're the last one to believe. That the fight's not worth it. That not thine but mine is the way everybody else thinks so wrong. The Satan is the father of lies. Right now, we have each other and millions more fighting the good fight of faith for the glory of Jesus. God's got this and God has you. Why is Satan so enraged? But because he can't win. Because Christ has won. So don't lose heart. Advance your part of the great battle today. Resist the devil as one of God's family of soldiers. Let's come to our final kind help for keeping to the High King's Highway here. Let's come to verses 10 and 11. You'll see there, Peter bids us endure to the end, for God will deliver on eternal glory. And so he writes this. He says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, there is a little while and an after to our share in Christ's sufferings. I lead with that to say our crosses in this world are only in this world. Our pain in the path of Christ is not permanent. Our exilic state is not everlasting. Our foreignness is not forever. It is a little while. And there is an after. How much can be endured then when our souls are convinced that the finish line is near with endless joy just beyond? Peter here offers the perspective that we need in Christian pain. This too shall pass into that living hope. And that beyond the shadow of a doubt. We see, don't we, that our, our cases are in the mighty hand of the God of all grace. What a title. What a title. And what a cordial for his weary exiles. Do you doubt 
I'm sure you do from time to time. Do you doubt you're going to make it home? Do you doubt you're going to make it all the way home? If so, let this reaffirm assurance in your heart. You do not go a step with Christ without Christ. But He guards you who is the God of all grace. The sense is this, there is not a groan in your Gethsemane, but God has a grace to meet it and thereby propel you further along the way of the cross. That garden may be dark and full of distress, but as with Peter and the rest of the disciples there, Christ and all His bleeding love is there, present with you and for you. There is all sufficient grace for that garden of hard obedience, and the same grace is pledged to bring you all the way home to glory. Church, God has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. And there is not a grace He does not have, nor a grace He will spare to get you there. To be the God of all grace is not only to have all grace to give, but also to be unfathomably gracious so as to actually rejoice to give it to you. He has no lack of grace or graciousness has no might or mightiness to see His call of you through to its goal, which is this lasting sight of His glory in Christ. It's that enjoyment of that heavenly inheritance that Jesus has won for us. I don't know what it's been for you, but one of the sweetest truths of 1 Peter for me came back in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. How we are doubly secured by God. Remember this? He both keeps a plot of glory for us and He guards us for it. Do you remember that? And it's to this at the close that Peter returns. How for all the troubles that might attend your public identity with Jesus, however torn you may be, however miscast by the world, however wearied, however broken down by it, God Himself, it says, will restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. The last shall be first. The humiliated for Jesus will be the exalted of God. In due time, God's elect exiles will arrive in their native land, tried and true and totally vindicated. Again, as God Himself will see to it, it cannot be otherwise. For you see, for you see, the forever and ever dominion belongs to Him. The forever and ever dominion belongs to our King Jesus. And thus, in full assurance of faith, let us affirm with Peter in that garden, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is, let us, by his kind help, keep to the high king's highway all the way home. Unbelieving friend, see in verse 10 
that God calls sinners to his eternal glory. And that that heaven is found in none but Jesus Christ. And it does not matter, I want you to hear, it does not matter how far down the lion's mouth you may be. God is mighty to save. And as the God of all grace, He lacks no grace that would otherwise prevent Him from saving you. Only turn from your sin. Only entrust yourself to Jesus who died and rose to save us from our sins and God will save you. He will save you from your sins. And I'd love to talk to you about it in just a moment after service. Beloved, Gethsemane is a paradigm for the faithful Christian life. Not mine, but thine is to be the creed of our heart. It's to stare down our crosses knowing on account of Jesus, they're emptied of wrath and full of grace. And they're to choose every day obedience, no matter the consequence, because we know the ultimate end, life everlasting. And for the assurance of it now, let's just humble ourselves. Let's humble ourselves. Let's lay ourselves in the mighty hand of the God of all grace. Let's cast all our anxieties on Him because He cares for us. Let's resist the devil as part of God's family of soldiers. Let's endure to the end because He will deliver on His promise of eternal glory in Christ Jesus. There is, remember, a living hope for holy living when that life is hard. And so, by all his kind helps, by all his kind helps, let's keep to the high king's highway. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and ask now that you would be glorified through it. You are the God of all grace. Be gracious to us. Firm up our faith and help us to be obedient to you always and to the end. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.